You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist Woolless Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio. Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My name's Joseph Toscanis. If you've got any complaints, contact me. Now, uh, a few... You can always leave a pleasant or even unpleasant message on 0439 395 489 anytime you like, because I don't answer the phone, but I do call back. 0439 395 489. Few websites, public interest before corporate interest, pipsypibci.net. You can join online. We've finally caught up with the 21st century. Uh, Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public. Defend and extend public housing. Public housing, everybody's business. The Tanaminaway Morbohina website, that's coming up on the 20th of January, that particular uh, event and the list goes on and on and on. Anarchistage at yahoo.com. The Peter Norman Facebook page. Uh, YouTube's Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. JosephToscano.nam. So there's lots of bits and pieces you can actually uh, access or decide not to access. Obviously, what you do regarding the material on this program is totally up to you. What's anarchism? comes from the Greek anarchos. What does it mean? Without rulers. Anarchism is a, the, the struggle for anarchism, the struggle to create a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, inequalities in power and wealth? So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. And it's the struggle to involve as many people affected by decision in that decision process, possibly through direct democratic means. Simple concepts, nothing radical about it. Human beings for thousands of years has been struggling in many ways against the imposition of the impositions which are placed on them and their lives by rulers who somehow think they're more important than anybody else. Very simple concept. Now, look, I like, I like to start off with something that I've dear to my heart, but 
considering the current state of the world, maybe you may find it's irrelevant. But is the Eureka Rebellion relevant 169 years later on? Is it still relevant? What was it all about? And why on this Sunday, the 3rd of December, the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion, that's the organisation we set up 22 years ago, that's the Anarchist Media Institute, plus Ballarat and Western Regions Trades Hall, will be marking the day for a series of events which you're all welcome to. You don't have to ring anybody up, you just turn up on the day. It's very simple. But before we look at the events, let's look at the story behind the Eureka Rebellion. Now, a lot of people think that the Eureka Rebellion was a, was a revolt against mining licences. Nothing could be further than the truth. That could, have been, that could have been the catalyst. But we really need to go to the beginning of colonisation in Victoria in 1836, 1835, 1836. By the late 1840s, a vibrant Aboriginal community of over 100,000 had been reduced to less than 2,000. They're the facts. Facts. And I know facts are unpalatable these days. We like to create them to fit our current political peccadilloes, but they're the facts. Within 20 years, less than 20 years of the beginning of colonisation, 15 years, the Aboriginal population had been reduced from over 100,000 to less than 2,000. Who took up the slack? All this wonderful country. Well, it was gentlemen of name and quality who squatted Victoria. Less than 700 people had claimed ownership to the whole of Victoria. Now, Victoria gained its independence from New South Wales in 1851 and it had a legislative council. The legislative council was dominated by the squatters who only had the, who had the power to vote. And when gold was first discovered in 1851, there was a big issue. Gentlemen of name and quality who were using vast tracts of land to raise sheep with virtual slaves, ticket-of-leave men and women who'd wandered down from New South Wales, to export wool to the satanic mills in England, were making lots and lots and lots of money as a result of their acquisition of this land for nothing. So they had three land, almost three labour. Now they were very concerned, very, very concerned that when gold was discovered, that their employees would desert them and flock to the gold fields. So legislation was passed in the Legislative Council which was designed to tax the miner. That's where the mining licences came. Tax the miner for a little piece of... little Tats Lotto ticket, six metres by six metres, which would be paid every month. And the mining licence was actually more than uh, people earned in a month. And the idea of having a mining licence and not taxing the gold that came out of the earth was because they wanted people to stay on 
the squatted land and continue to rear sheep for a pittance for gentlemen of name and quality. So when tens of thousands of people, over a quarter of a million, flock to the Victorian gold fields to find their fortune, and many of these people were political refugees, many of them were um, involved in the Chartist movement in England in the 1830s and 1840s, many had been involved in the Captain Swing and the Ned Ludlight Ned Ludd revolts against inappropriate mechanisation. Many were refugees from the, eight, the failed 1848 revolutions which spread across Europe. These people came to this land to start a new life. And they soon found that what they had left and what they'd come to was almost the same. No difference. The only difference was that there had been people here before uh, colonisation began. So what happened is there were meetings, protests across Victoria. Bendigo, Castlemaine, Ballarat, Warrnambool, Geelong, you name it. But things came to a head in Ballarat on the 3rd of December 1854. So why do they come to a head specifically in Ballarat? Why do we see an armed struggle appear out of almost nowhere in Ballarat in 1854? One of the most important issues was police corruption. Victoria had gained independence from New South Wales in 1851 and set up the Victorian Police Force in 1853. the government refused to pay police an adequate wage. But in order to supplement their income, they were given a percentage of the fines which were raised through the arrests they made of minors. So you can imagine the anger on the goldfields, especially the Ballarat goldfields, where there'd be constant mining licence, checks and raids, constant negative interaction between this sea of people who expected better in a new country. On the 11th of November, 1854, the Ballarat Reform League was formed and that was the league which was formed as a result of the oppressive conditions, especially in Ballarat at that particular point in time. It was the organisation behind the Eureka Rebellion. And it was an interesting organisation because it took a leaf out of the Chartist book in England and used mass meetings as a mechanism by which to mobilise people. They used a very early form of direct democracy where mass meetings were held. And remember, this was before, you know the PA system and electricity, mass meetings were held, decisions were made, delegates were chosen, the delegates were then given specific mandates, they moved, they came, went down to Melbourne to negotiate with the government of the day and then they came back to report to these mass meetings. And then negotiations with Governor Hotham, a naval disciplinarian who'd had been appointed to ensure there was no 
revolt in this little corner of Queen Victoria's empire. Really got nowhere. But the mechanism was established. Although Laylor is described as the sword of the rebellion, a much more important person was Harry, uh, I think Henry Seacombe, Seacom, who was the editor of the Ballarat Times. And he put the newspapers behind the rebellion. They were responsible for printing the posters which were put up in order to advertise these mass meetings. Now, obviously, many things happened on the goldfield which uh, created more and more tension, which exposed the hypocrisy of the government, exposed the total corrupt activities of the Victoria Police in uh, 1854. And things escalated. In the early stages the pacifist element of the Ballarat Reform League held sway. But by late November 1854, the more radical elements who believed in direct action held sway because of lack of government response to their requests for change, their request for changes, especially to the mining licence and he, you know, keeping the Victoria Police at bay. On the 29th of November, which is 169 years uh, to the day, the Ballarat miners, or about a thousand of them, met at Bakery Hill in Ballarat. Now, Bakery Hill was the highest point in Ballarat. It was the site where the monster meetings were held. And they unfurled the Eureka flag, the Southern Cross, more importantly than unfurling the Eureka flag and denoting their desire to break away from British imperialism, they swore an oath. And that oath is now chiselled, not in granite, but chiselled into the mindset of activists, radical activists today. And I'll go through that oath, 169 years after it was sworn. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, this was an extraordinary statement for 1854. But you've got to remember, we've got a lot of sophisticated political activists, radical activists, in the community who had fleed persecution from Europe, who now found themselves on the Ballarat Goldfields. We. That's the first word, we. Not, you know, men, not women. Not people of a particular religious belief particular colour, speaking a particular language, but we, everybody on the goldfields who suffered under the yoke of the British Empire, we. No divisions made. We. Not we Australians or we English or we this or we that, but we, we. We swear by the Southern Cross. Now, a lot of people think the Southern Cross is 
religious uh, icon in the Eureka Rifle? Well, it's not. When people came from the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern Hemisphere and they set up a tent city, they set up tent cities across Victoria. And when they got out in the middle of the night to relieve themselves or whatever, get a breath of fresh air, what they saw in the sky was the Southern Cross. You cannot see the Southern Cross in the Northern Hemisphere. The Southern Cross reminded them they were in a new land. They were in a new land. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. Well, that's about solidarity. Just stand truly by each other. All political and social movements that have succeeded have relied on solidarity as a significant tool in their struggle. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. And it's interesting that if you look at a lot of the early literature, the word fight was removed from the historical account in the Eureka Rave. So obviously fight means direct action. People were willing to take direct action to protect what they believed they were born with, inalienable rights and liberties which could not be taken away by the state or, or some religious leader or some economic entity. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. They set up the Eureka Stockade, which is only about a, an acre in size, flew the Eureka flag, and at around 2am on Sunday, it's interesting that the 169th anniversary also falls on a Sunday, on Sunday, the 3rd of December, 1854, around 250 British troops and about 90 mounted Victorian police surrounded the stockade, attacked the stockade, and uh, the resistance to the stockade collapsed within about 15 minutes. Although, unlike what we hear in history, that most of the men who died in the stockade on that day were the pikemen. These were 30 men with rudely fashioned pikes. There was only about 104 people in the stockade when it was raided because obviously, obviously, the miners never thought that a, a Christian government would attack them on a Sunday morning, would they? So they'd gone back to their tents. And they held their pikes up as these, as the troops ran, galloped at them. Half of them died on the spot. And they died to allow other people in the stockade to escape into the tent city, which was erected outside the stockade. Now, most of the killings which occurred, and anywhere between 50 to 70, were carried out by the Victoria Police. The troops were relatively disciplined and after they pulled down the flag, the Southern Cross, and trampled on it, the Victoria Police went on a riot, looking for gold, burning tents, shooting people, killing people up to three kilometres from the site. 
They wanted revenge for the humiliation they had suffered over the last few years. So a lot of people describe the Eureka battle as a Eureka massacre. So what happened? Was this the end of it? Was 1854, the 3rd of December 1854, the end of it? Now this was the beginning. This is one of those political struggles which was won, although the battle had been lost. The military battle had been lost. The political struggle was won. 13 people were arrested. A whole collection of people. Raphael Caboni, who was the elected leader of the non-English-speaking battalion, which had been mobilised to protect the stockade. We had Irish nationalists. We had a freed black slave from New York. Another black from Kingston in Jamaica, part of the British Empire. We had a Jew, Mr Sorison. And a number of Jews actually died in the stockade. The lemonade salesman. The list goes on and on. Of the 13 people who were sent for trial, every single one was acquitted of the crime of high treason by sympathetic Melbourne juries. In early 1855, between February and June 1855, the government faced with widespread revolt across the colony of Victoria and the possibility they could actually lose this colony negotiated with the rebels. And most of the demands were met, including universal male suffrage, met on paper. This was again was the beginning of a radical transformation of Victorian society. And what happened, although a number of the main agitators were elected to the Victorian Legislative Assembly, the more radical elements set up an alternative parliament that was called the Southern Markets, which is at the corner, I think, about it, Exhibition and Burke Street. And that parliament was based on direct democratic principles. And it actually was within a stone's throw of Victorian Parliament, which was based on representative democratic principles. And we saw this interaction because the main issue was access to land. Who should have access to land? How to break the monopoly the squatters had on land? Now, a lot of people think that the Eureka Rebellion has nothing to do with the original inhabitants, the Wa-Da-Warang and the Daja-Daja-Warang. Nothing could be further from the truth. Raphael Caboni, in 1853, was employed as a shepherd in the Ballarat region, and he lived with the Wa-Da-Warang. And he understood their plight, the remnants of the Wa-Da-Warang. He understood their plight. And when he went back to Italy a number of years later, well, it wasn't Italy then, but part of Italy he, he came from, he wrote an opera called Gilburnia. Could you imagine that? 
It was really about the plight of the Wa Da Warung. And he's the first writer since 1788, the first person who's put it on paper, that Australia's First Nations people were victims of British colonialism. He made that quite clear. The day after the rebellion, the same day of the rebellion, now think about it, you've got these troops and mounted troops and police, mounted police, massacring people, shooting people, there's there's fire, there's flames, there's people screaming, they're, they're running around. Obviously a lot of children get lost in such a malay. And the local Wa Da Warang looked after the children that had been lost until they could be reunited with their parents. Now, look, nice story, you may say. What's it got to do with me in 2023? What's the 169th anniversary of this little rebellion got to do with me? Got to do with me as an Australian citizen? Well, Eureka was about universal values, concepts which we have as a society forgotten about in 2023. It was about we. It was about universal values. It's about rights for individuals and communities. It's about ensuring that everybody had could share in the Commonwealth. And if you look at many of the reforms which occurred in Victoria post the Eureka Rebellion, it wasn't just about mining licences. It just wasn't about parliamentary representations or alternative parliaments. It was about real reforms. By 1872, Governor Heels introduced legislation which made Victoria the first entity on the planet to incorporate three secular compulsory education for all children. We saw the breakdown, slow breakdown of the squatters' monopoly on the land. We saw people talking about rights. And many of the issues which were faced in 1854 are exactly the same issues we face today. Issues regarding First Nations people and compensation. I mean, losing a referendum where people were given a non-binding constitutional voice just highlights how far away we are from that concept of treaty and compensation. The increasing gap between rich and poor, between who exercises power and who doesn't exercise power in this country highlights that the same inequalities that led to the Eureka Rebellion in 1854, those same inequalities, whether it's housing affordability, whether it's cost of living, whether it's having a decent income, whether it's not just being a product, these issues are as relevant today as they were in 1854. The lessons of 1854, though the rebellion failed, is that we need to exert pressure in order to extract reforms from those who exercise power 
That is the lesson of history. It's the continuing lesson of history. That's why in 2022, we established the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations because if you go to Ballarat, hardly anything happens. Conservative Council, over over, over 169 years, have refused... Now, listen to this. You may find this incredible, but it's true have refused to fly the Eureka flag on the main flagpole on the Ballarat Town Hall, not even during the 2450th anniversary celebrations. They have refused point blank to, f- to fly the Eureka flag on the main flagpole on the Ballarat Town Hall to pay their respects to those men half of those that were killed on the, on the gold fields on the 3rd of December, who were buried in the old Ballarat Cemetery less than three kilometres away. 24 of them. Can't even raise a flag. It doesn't cost them a bloody cent. Could you imagine any other sovereign nation state treating people who are claimed were the forerunners of Australian democracy? and to me they were much, much more than forerunners of Australian democracy, not being shown an ounce, one ounce, one modicum of respect by flying a bloody flag on a main flagpole once a year. What an extraordinary situation we find ourselves in. And that's why in 2002, that was one of the reasons we set up the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebration. And we've had troubles ever since dealing with these recalcitrant councils. Not all of them, but most of them. Have always, who use the symbols of Eureka to promote their city, and we see businesses across Ballarat, you know, using the symbols of Eureka to promote their city and their businesses but can't shed one tear on the anniversary of the Eureka Massacre. Extraordinary. So our presence there is a fawn in their sides. The fact that we don't ask for money, the fact that we don't ask for a permit, the fact that we hold these celebrations and now that we've teamed up with Ballarat and Western Regions Trades Hall, the fact that we do this every year, to honour those people and, more importantly, honour what they stood for, ideas which are incorporated in the Eureka Oath, direct action, direct democracy, internationalism and solidarity, means that their sacrifice was not in vain. So it's a Sunday this year. We always celebrate on the day, whether it's a Monday or a Sunday or a Thursday, it doesn't matter. So I'm encouraging you to take the... well. If you're not working, to take the day off. And obviously, weekends don't matter in 2023 when it comes to making a buck. So, we have one, two, three, four, five, seven components to the celebrations uh, to mark the 169th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. You can join all the seven components or you can, uh, you know, join us for one or join us for none. That's the beauty, isn't it? Ultimately, it's up to you. 
From 4am to 6am, we're having a dawn ceremony at the Eureka Park, which is the corner of Eureka and Stall Street in Ballarat. And we stand on the site which we believe is the site of the Eureka Stockade, waiting for the dawn. We'll have, uh, I'll, I'll be speaking, and uh, the Secretary of the Ballarat and Western Regions Trades Hall, Mr Brett Etchison, will also be speaking. And then we open up for everybody who attends to say some words about why they're there and what it means to them and why they've got there at 4am. It's interesting that our brothers and sisters from the West Papua Independence Movement will also be there. And they'll be there because, fascinatingly, the Morning Star, which is their symbol of independence, and they will raise their flag tomorrow, the first, sorry, the day after tomorrow, on Friday, the 1st of December, West Papua Independence Day. The Morning Star and the Southern Cross are the two constellations that can only be seen from the Southern Hemisphere. And they will be there to honour the Eureka rebels and the ideas they stood for because obviously they are the survivors of a 60-year war of liberation in West Papua. And it's interesting that the West Papua independence movement seems to have much more time and interest in our own history than we as a people do, especially, especially the Ballarat City Council. From 6am to 8am, we'll have a communal breakfast on the grounds at Eureka Park. Now, the dawn ceremony is at the corner of Eureka and Stall Street. Eureka and Stall Street. Then at 10am, we'll have a Eureka Medal, Australia Medal presentations at Bakery Hill. And there are some fascinating people I'll mention next week. 11.30am to 12.30pm, Old Ballarat Cemetery, the Eureka Mass Grave, to pay our respects. And please bring flowers. Sometimes we go there and there's not one flower maybe on a weekend, but not one flower to mark the day. Just an extraordinary situation. Then between 1 and 2pm, we'll have a light lunch at Ballarat Trades Hall at 24 Camp Street. 3 to 4pm, I'll be uh, doing a presentation of the history of the Eureka flag at the Eureka Centre next to the Eureka flag. And at 6pm onwards, we have the annual Eureka dinner at, uh, it'll be at, the Queen's Head Hotel. No bookings necessary. We've made, you know, we've booked a few seats. We don't expect a lot of people, but you're welcome to come along. And that's the thing. The thing is, while one of us remembers, while one of us makes the time, their sacrifice isn't lost. So, if you can't make it this year, maybe next year. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It is broadcast across Australia, said via the Community Radio Network. It is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can get more information by going to the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public. You can go to the um, Ballarat Trades Hall uh, webpage. You can go to the Atticus Media Webpage. You can go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest webpage. Let's move on. The new kid on the block, libertarian nationalism. Ever heard of libertarian nationalism? Most likely you haven't. Now, libertarianism is a bad name. Now, libertarianism, all it means is freedom-loving. And you can have 
left-wing libertarians, you can have right-wing libertarians. But there's a big difference. And the big difference is that left-wing libertarians are about breaking the centralisation of political movements like communism and socialism which attempt to usher in a new dawn with disastrous consequences because it relies on the centralisation of power. Left-wing libertarianism is about freedom-loving, it's about the decentralisation of power, the things we talk about, things like direct democracy. Right-wing libertarianism is ultimately about removing the state or only using the state to defend the power of the corporate sector. It's about allowing the market to decide. It's leaving every aspect of human existence to the market. A new brand of libertarianism, which to me in many regards mirrors National Socialism, which was the political ideology of the Nazi Party in Germany, is libertarian nationalism. And that's what we've seen happen in Argentina. We have seen a failed state and people move towards the idea of allowing the corporate sector, the economic engine drivers to determine the fate of Argentinians at the same time using fear and division as their calling card. And if you look at the rise of National Socialism in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, and how they were able to capture the state apparatus and use it to promote their ideology. And you look at the program of libertarian nationalists, there are many eerie parallels. Many eerie parallels. So it'll be interesting to see whether sooner or later the Argentinian people start bucking up against this new this new well it's an old political ideology in a new costume, you know, masquerading as libertarian nationalism. Freedom, loving nationalism, allowing the corporate sector, the market to decide every aspect of human existence. That means a crackdown on any trade unions, as we saw in Argentina thirty or forty years ago. It may see the re-establishment of the military, as we saw in the 70s and 80s, as the main power source in Argentina. But the dilemma is, libertarian nationalism is not just an Argentinian phenomenon. We're seeing it everywhere around the world, including the US and even Australia. It's about using people's dissatisfaction with the state 
or with the way the state treats its citizens and allowing the corporate sector to dominate every aspect of existence in a so-called sovereign nation-state. Now, sometimes I feel sorry for people. I know, it's not a good thing, sorrow, is it? doesn't help, does it, really? I'm feeling a little bit sorry for Christians. I always feel sorry for Christians around Christmas time, which is Jesus Christ's birthday. Because, you see, Christians' main enemy aren't us atheists. I mean, we're, we're happy to, you know, make our feelings known regarding all types of religious beliefs. That's why we're atheists. We don't think that that little chap in the sky or that little lady in the sky exists. And I think human history is on our side. But the great thing about Christmas in Australia and the rest of the world to a significant degree is materialism. Materialism is the end game. This is not the Christians' fault. Obviously they want us to, you know, celebrate the birth of Christ, Jesus' son, on earth. The sacrifice he made, a little bit like the sacrifice made by the Eureka rebels. But materialism is our religion. It is the religion of 2023 in this country. It is what drives us. We have been encapsulated in an ideology, and it is just an ideology, that puts materialism the quest for material goods beyond our human needs as the essence of everyday life. No wonder in a world dominated by materialism, and Christmas is, the, to me, is, is uh, just as fascinating as the Black Friday sales because we, you've got to move from one materialistic uh, uh, period to another and it's nothing better than Black Friday and then on to Christmas and then who knows what's next but materialism trumps everything in this society because this society has become nothing more than a organisation we'll call it an organisation that promotes profit through the acquisition of material goods before all other human needs. And that's the beauty, isn't it? It's a beauty. Because irrespective of the human, social, environmental costs, materialism is the end game. Whether it's your superannuation fund, which relies on it making a buck so you can actually, you know, get a living during part of your retirement until it runs out. It's just an extraordinary situation. So you do have an opportunity to strike back. Because do you really need that second boat? Or do you really need that first boat? Do you really need that latest electric car? Do you really need all those wonderful 
wonderful clothes made by people being paid $2 a day in some God-forsaken place in Bangladesh or Pakistan. Because materialism, in many regards, is the root of all evil. Not, it's not religion, but materialism. That desire to acquire, and nothing highlights this in this current housing affordability crisis. Well, you've got a segment of the population that's got their foot in the door as far as home ownership is concerned, and another segment of the population, a growing segment that has been, you know, kicked out, not allowed in, members only. No wonder this country has the highest rate of antidepressant use in the Western world. This is an extraordinary figure. No wonder there are so many charities and organisations concerned about our mental health. Because what we need to remember is we don't live in a vacuum. We are part of society. Whether we want to be part of society, whether we think we're a sovereign citizen who's got nothing to do with society, the fact is we are all part of society. And the stresses and strains of survival come in many forms. And what we are seeing today in terms of the emphasis on material wealth has the only worthwhile pursuit in life has created what I described as, not just me but other people, a deaf culture. We now are the product. We no longer buy products. We have become the product. Technological innovation has allowed our corporate uh, brothers and sisters, I'm being polite there, to actually invert the equation. We think that we're in control. But the ultimate irony is that we have become the product. The information we have has become their selling point. So think about it. When materialism trumps Jesus, as a society, we have a significant issue. And I think to a large degree that was highlighted in terms of the debate regarding the voice, where it's all, it was all about them taking our backyards. So it was juiced to that not as a step towards resolving that issue for once and for all. This is The Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, where are the celebrities when you need them? All right? Where are they? Now, I just like to look at Israel's military strategy. It's, not, it's, it's a simple one. It's happened over and over again through human history. Now, in Gaza which is a little enclave about half the size of Canberra. Not a big place with 2.3 million people, right? Now, when Hamas and their allies broke out of Gaza and caused some carnage, caused carnage and chaos in southern Israel, 
they retreated back to Gaza with hostages. Okay? Now, history didn't start on the 7th of October as far as Gaza, Palestine, the West Bank, Israel is concerned. It started decades ago. And let's not forget, the Palestinians had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Anti-Semitism is basically in the European DNA. That's how over hundreds, if not thousands of years, we've been conditioned. It was carried out by the German state under a national socialist ideology. Nothing to do with the Palestinians who are now paying the price for the Holocaust. So what's Israel's military strategy? Well, they're chasing killer whales. You know how they're going to resolve the issue? They're going to empty the ocean. Think about it. We've got killer whales in the ocean. You want to get rid of the killer whales, you empty the ocean. But what happens when you empty the ocean? You kill everybody else. You're not concerned about anybody else. Now, sometimes you have to laugh. You think you're listening to comedy. I was listening to an Israeli Defence Force spokesperson telling people that who are interested in human rights, women's rights, children's rights, that we should get behind the Israeli military. And then I hear other people say that if you're against the Israeli invasion or slaughter, I don't use the word invasion, uh, slaughter in Gaza, that somehow you're anti-Semitic, which is, an in, I take that as a personal insult. But I want to ask one question today, just one question. How many Hamas militants in the 14,000 Palestinian body count, how many Hamas militants have been in that body count? Now, I know, and you know, that 14,000 people have been slaughtered. It's not a war. A war is when either side maybe has an opportunity of defending itself, as we see with Russia and Ukraine, where the West has brought armaments into Ukraine so it can defend itself. But... How many Hamas militants have been killed or are among the 14,000 Palestinians killed so far? And that number will escalate in the next few days. How many? Well, we know there's about 10,000 militants are militants in the Gaza Strip. Not a large amount, about 10,000. Now, we know there are 14,000-plus Palestinians have been killed in the last 50 days of the Israeli slaughter in Gaza. We know that over 4,500 are children. Now, although there are many children or teenagers in Israeli jails, and some have been freed through the uh, hostage prisoner swap that's been uh, arranged over the last few days... I can't imagine that a five-year-old or a baby or a four-year-old or a ten-year-old could be described as a Hamas militant. Then among the other, say, let's say 8,000 or 7,500, many women, many old people, because you see in war it's the civilians who suffer, especially in this type of urban slaughter. So wouldn't it be nice to have to get a, an estimate, are they killing a thousand Palestinians for one for one militant? 
Are they killing 100 Palestinians for one militant? Could you imagine if these atrocities were occurring anywhere else in the world? Anywhere else in the world, how our government and the United States government and other governments that have thrown their support to these atrocities, could you imagine how it would be jumping up and down, talking about baby killers, how we need to intervene, how we need to have a coalition of the willing, and the list goes on and on. Because it's between Gazans who've been basically um, shunned by the world, apart from the people of the world and the Israeli military, somehow it's okay. Somehow the disproportionate response is good. Somehow policies to push them into Egypt is acceptable. Come on. I have never seen so much one-sided, media-driven hype in this country regarding a war or a slaughter, whatever you like to call it. Just extraordinary. Just extraordinary how we're willing to close our eyes. And I haven't even talked about the impending mass starvation, the removal of water, the removal of food, the removal of energy, and the list goes on and on. Come on. We can do better than that. So those people who think it's over because there's been a ga- in our truce for a few days, it's not over. While the United States continues to pull the strings and provide the military support, the Israeli military will continue this slaughter. But I'd like next time, next time we see some embedded reporter ask a question of the Israeli defence military uh, media unit, how many... Hamas militants have you killed in your attempt to, to empty the ocean to kill the killer whales? How many? This is not new. We saw in the Vietnam War the, the Orange, Agent Orange deforestation program and the fact that children continue to be born with significant congenital abnormalities, not just in Vietnam, but among the descendants of troops in Australia and uh, United States who were used in that war and uh, uh, were uh, spraying Agent Orange. Well, you've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the community radio network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. If you're listening to this program on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, the program is rebroadcast in case you can't sleep at 5am on Friday morning. But it is podcast, 3cr.org.au. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week. Don't forget the lunch today at midday and hopefully we'll be here next week to look at what's happening in the world around us. Thank you to the Sacred Cows. See you next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist Wall this week. 
Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! CR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.